Welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I am joined by the interrupting uh, (laughs) sound you heard, which is Catherine Rubino. I am also joined by Chris Williams. How you doing there, Joe? You were out last week. I don't think you understand how this process works. When I I say I'm also joined by Chris Williams, he's supposed to talk. Well, I waited a beat. I mean, yeah. You don't want dead air. Are you familiar with the podcasting biz? Yeah, I I think you've got a... You've, you've got a different definition of beat. I'm on Joe's side with this interrupting voices apropos of this podcast. Right? I didn't even get See how respond. she does this all the time? I'm glad <laughs> yeah. I'm coming around to my side. Yeah, you know what? And, yeah. and fuck the sounds. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, on that front, well, wait, we, we should begin this show. As we weren't able to last week because I was ill, we will begin with some small talk. Small talk. All right. Yeah, so I wasn't here last week. I can make that a bit of my small talk. I felt terrible. That's no huh. good. Yeah, I actually don't think I've gotten that sick in a really long time. You know, just an illness like cold level sick. I don't think I've had anything like that in a while. Like I was. Did you have I a two week crock like pot 18 egg? Eighteen hours. What was it? A two week crock pot egg. No. World I remember. One, no. I remember one time you make an eggnog and like you were talking about like having a thing in a crock pot for like two weeks of egg. It oh was no! A, it was a deep cut callback. That is, yeah, they, and that that's not how that works. It's that you sous vide the eggs for all uh, for like twenty minutes or something like that, and that will uh, pasteurize them so that you don't have to worry about raw egg having any. Uh, any salmonella on it uh that's a whole different issue uh yeah no the i felt very ill and uh thankfully it wasn't COVID or anything but yeah like slept for 18 hours in a row at one Mm. point just real bad no bueno but you're back now with all of your sound effects i am so it's exciting for uh, the listeners i'm sure and hopefully for all of you is there any other small talk topics that uh strike any of your fancies right before the show we were talking about the the joys of whiskey beers yeah i don't know we i i've had that before it just seems like two great tastes that taste worse together (laughs) well for me it's different it's it's a it's a great taste and a thing that gets sold as a, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't like beer. I think there, I just have strong frat associations with it. Not to mention that Fair. it both looks and tastes like piss, unless yeah. you like IPAs, <laughs> which is just like decaf weed tasting in your beer. And I'm like, like ew, why would you do that? Just if you're beer does not water, taste like piss. Also, but uh, not. uh, nat- natty light and Budweiser. I don't know how much piss you've been drinking, but I've dabbled <laughs> in many a drink. It has not been that particular brine. So right, yeah. I enjoy a nice light beer, and if they're going to be derogatorily re- uh, compared to anything, it's water, which yeah. is fair, but also refreshing. Also, speaking of refreshing, completely different because the viewers can't see this. Nice orange nails. It's a cool touch. Well, yes, I have orange nails because, as I mentioned a couple of weeks cuties. ago, I recently had my baby shower, and it matched the theme of the baby shower. So, uh, well, I'm so- sorry to... <laughs> Sorry to tell the listeners, but uh, Joe is not wearing a matching set. Really dropped the yeah. ball. No, I do not have nails. 
Uh, you have nails. Well, I mean, you don't I have, have painted nails. nails. I do not. Yes, no. There's a distinction fair. there. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, and anyway, the what were we talking about? Oh yeah, beers. Yeah, the IPA. The the fixation the world has on IPAs it needs to stop. The, yeah, it's just. Yeah. It's just too much. I feel like it has come down a bit in the last maybe three or four years. It's not quite the height that it was in like the mid-teens. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. It was like right. Starbucks for like mid-20, 30-something men. I yeah. yeah. Yes, that's exactly what I it was. That. They were like jealous that white women had their Starbucks yeah. culture. So they created their own. I mean, I yeah. think there is a pumpkin spice IPA somewhere. There's in that. multiple, yeah, not, that not just one. Let's be very clear. All right. Ugh. Okay, well, with all of that done, I think we can move on to real topics. <laughs> okay, so uh, we had a few stories of the, uh, of the last week worth discussing. Uh, let's jump into the first one. Uh, Chris, this is one that you covered. Uh, there was a recent Supreme Court determination and... Only three justices dissented, dissented from this, but it dealt with, well, explain this case. Yeah, so it was a felony murder case. The dissenting justices were Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, and Justice Kentaji, and the uh, the rest of them were cool with the outcome. So what happened was there was a guy, he got hit with a felony murder charge. One of the good things about felony murder that makes it different from, you know, actual murders, like there's no defenses to it, what have you. It's like a... It's like uh, I described it as uh, the transitive property going crazy. Uh, he was involved in what appeared to be a um, a there was a shooting like him and like five other men. There was no story that made it more likely that he pulled the trigger and killed or sh- did the shooting that made him more likely than any of the other five. This evidence was not introduced to trial. There was no evidence of a, like a smoking gun in his hand at the time. And he's like, hey, they're about to kill me for this. This is probably a bad thing, right? And the justices were like, nope, it's cool. That's not how felony murder works. The jury was probably considering that he might not have been the person that actually shot the gun that killed the people. Doesn't matter. And Sotomayor was like, the fuck? She said it in a much more legalistic way, but that was the general sentiment. Right. So so to abstract out a little bit, so the way felony murder works is essentially it's a provision of the law that uh, – operates as kind of like a disincentive. Functionally, if you take part in a criminal enterprise that results in a murder, they are allowed the government is allowed to charge you as responsible for that murder because you engaged in the criminal activity that ended in that murder. So if you and your accomplice go perform an armed robbery or something like that and your accomplice murders the teller, you are liable for murder because that murder wouldn't have happened but for your involvement in the enterprise, essentially. Uh, This obviously goes further than most crimes do, right? Most crimes, we have a a real bent towards proving you did the actual act Mm -hmm. uh, before we can drop the hammer of the government on you. In this instance, they... You know, society has largely come around to the idea that we can have some vicarious liability, shall we say, for people who are involved in this as a disincentive to getting yourself mixed up in potentially deadly criminal activity. And the thing worth mentioning about involvement is that it's loose. It doesn't it's not just limited to your party. So, for example, if there's a police officer that shoots a gun and murders someone, under you know normal standards, the police officer is the person that committed the murder. Like they mean they even it might have even been like 
unnecessary. There might not have been any need for them to do any shooting in the in the interaction. But the guilt and responsibility of that is applied to the people who committed the felony. Um, right. And it's and it's had strange effects. Like there are even times where like a person um, involved with like a felony murder charge was charged with like say like poaching or something because I think a cop from an airplane like shot wild game or something mm-hmm. and they tacked that on to somebody committing a crime that had nothing to do with killing wild game. So right, yeah, it really stretches so, the limits of responsibility. Well, so there are two there are two categories I think it's fair to say of problems with felony murder, uh, both dealing with proximity and the. Two examples you just gave deal with the attenuation of liability for the murder part or the the the, the killing part of it, right? So if you're if you're dealing with a situation where you have engaged in a criminal activity that results in the cops chasing you and the cops haphazardly shooting guns at you and that ends up killing somebody, the idea that that be pinned on you is a situation where your proximity to the death is attenuated. You didn't do anything or your criminal enterprise didn't really do anything that led to that death. It was something that was being done on, you know, by the police. The other flip side, the other side of it is a question of the proximity of liability uh, to to the person. So this is a situation where if you go on an armed robbery and your associate kills somebody, then, you know, it's right in front of you. They actually did it. You're a part of this criminal enterprise. But to what extent are you liable? If you rolled into an armed robbery, probably much more liable if you rolled into a shoplifting situation and didn't know that your accomplice had a gun now you're not really proximately involved as far as your you know mm-hmm. mens rea to the to commit any kind of violent act those are two different problems with the felony murder rule and i think it's important to distinguish between them because the problem with focusing on ones where the death is the attenuated part is that they're far too easily solved by minor reform fixes. You could fix that by saying, well, police misconduct or police acting unreasonably in pursuit of folks, that shouldn't count. But that still leaves the bulk of the actual problem with felony murder, which are the legions of people who didn't do anything wrong and didn't think they were doing anything wrong that end up being tagged with life sentences because they were a lookout on something they didn't think was going to involve any weapons. And it turns out that they had a bad faith co-conspirator. In this instance, it's more like that former situation. Someone of the people involved in this armed robbery actually went ahead and hauled off and murdered somebody. The question was just they couldn't figure out which one of them did it, and therefore felony murder kicked in, and the prosecutor said, it doesn't matter which one of them did it. They all are equally liable. Uh, that wouldn't make it more like the latter? No, more like the former, because the because they don't know which of them did it. Somebody shot somebody in the face. It's not like a situation where a cop five levels of attenuation further along while unreasonably performing a car chase crashed the car into a pedestrian. That's where the, that's where the death is not attenuated. One of the people in this case actually murdered somebody, but which of them it is and whether or not you can tag all of them just willy nilly without proving it is the question at hand here. But it is a real issue 
focusing on the the former side of it because there are a lot of people who get tagged with this who probably are bad folks who just as easily would have committed the murder if in if they'd given the opportunity and then there are a bunch of folks who don't know what's happening who don't understand that somebody's going to commit a crime uh well, going to commit a murder and they end up getting tagged with it uh based on not having complete information in a way that you know is not how the justice system's supposed to work but yeah it's a really important issue I still think even this instance where they were six men and without knowing who did what, there was a decision to smear liability equally without regard for the facts of the case outside of just like a set of. Well, I don't think it's outside of the facts of the case, right? Because felony murder rules specifically anticipates this exact situation. You can have problems with the rule, but it's not some prosecutorial problem. It's the way the law is written. Yeah, in some ways, this is the paradigmatic case, right? right? You don't want a situation where five people go in. And all point to the other one. They kill somebody, and they all point to each other, Spider-Man style, pretending, well, you can't put me in jail because I didn't... uh, I didn't pull the trigger. Because I didn't pull the trigger. And then when you do that, you end up in the situation where nobody gets charged, you know? Or no one's guilty or, or no responsible. One, no one gets yeah, and, yeah, convicted. And again, that's not to, it's not necessarily a justification for oh, the rule, not. but it is absolutely the way the rule is intended to work. Right. Uh, and and yeah, and that's not particularly a good way of having liability. Sure, handled. especially now but when you're is, talking about you know life in prison, death penalty sorts of it right. impacts for sure. But this is certainly but that is what it's how for, it's intended to work. Yeah. Yeah. My thing is, you know. When we think about a a murder trial, there are things like, you know, mental states, there are potential defenses Mm -hmm. that the that the um, that the person accused can have. There's need to prove that they actually did the thing, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and like when we think of the the death penalty as being like one of the the highest or even a a life sentence or in, in applying states as being like one of the highest things we can met out as far as punishment. The notion is that this particular person did this thing that we know. And the idea that there's so like in this case where it's like the person can be like, I did not shoot. I did not shoot this person. I did not have the gun. I might not even know the person that did it. Doesn't matter for that person to still be given uh, a treat as if they committed a murder. I think it's, 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 it's just like an anomaly. And I know that the idea is that there should be some form of, you know, we don't want to, we don't want people to get away with things, but I'm like, they didn't do the murder. You didn't prove they did the murder. Like a death happened, but let's not, let's not, you know, just, I think the thing about the felony murder rule is it's called a murder, but it's not that, like, that's not how we treat murders in, in the legal system. You know? Well, well, and, and, and that's the thing. And that, that goes to that proximate proximity of the death versus, versus the liability of the individual. I'm talking this about is both. I think it applies to both. This is definitely there's a no, murder. This was 100% yes. a murder, right? It's just they don't know which of them did it. Yes, and if you don't have the grounds of pinning liability to a specific person, exactly. I don't think that specific person should be charged with a crime that is generally appro- that is generally applied to a, when a per- specific doesn't person has a specific set of actions. Yeah, sure. Now like like sure if, like if it was tort, if it was tort, yeah. okay, I guess. But this is this is the death penalty. Right. Oh, like, yeah, you're really no, going to kill a guy because yeah. somebody else shot somebody else? Get him. <laughs> right? You know, 
that yeah, that is that is a problem. That that but that's where this is one of those bad cases and bad law situation, right? The like law the, is potentially the situation of a innocent lookout is mm-hmm. going to jail forever is far more common than this one, which is the reason which is very much you don't like the reason this rule exists is to avoid a situation like the mafia where mm-hmm. four guys show up execution style somebody and then turn around and go yeah you can't tell which of us actually pulled the triggers so i guess we all get to walk uh and you don't want that situation to develop and that's why rules like this exist that said like this seems like an egregious by the way this is the only stretch. place that rule exists like what? Just, it's also worth by the way also worth noting that's the only place this rule exists it's, for example canada outlawed in like 1990 yeah they said it was like they said it was like unconstitutional. Well, the level of abuse that happens mm-hmm. under it is just ridiculously high. Like the, mm-hmm. the the logic of it makes total sense, but like the amount of abuse, uh, both on the examples you were giving of the extenuated killings and those situations where the killing is very proximate, but people with low low was, involvement right. and culpability are getting tagged with it, are just so so egregious that. Yeah, no, there's uh, there's many, many good reasons to get rid of this uh, on both ends of that. And the wild thing is, it's like even if there's a scenario where there's a let's say a felony happens, there are persons A, B and C, person mm-hmm. B and C say to A, don't do this. Do not do this. Right. It is not part of the plan. Stop. Even if they try to stop. Well, there, there's some art. Exactly. Some sort of like. Well, I don't know. Actually, I don't think there's any defenses yeah. to felony murder. But like, let's say hypothetically, right. this was still a the case. Even if B and C tried to stop A, A shoots someone, B and C are still liable yes. for the death. Like, that is absurd. Yes. So like, even in instances where, like, so I, I guess that's what I was getting earlier when it was like, you just look at the the, the fact pattern without any of like the, what, what, what may have been considered intervening circumstances if we treated, you know, this like basically any other thing, you know? Yeah. No, and and that's a great point too. You don't have access to and this is what makes the Spider-Man meme scenario of this egregious is no one could even present a defense of yeah, I was the one saying don't do it because they a, mm-hmm. they utilize this rule to skip over all of that. Yeah. Right. So yeah, it's a huge issue. Felony murder uh, continues to be a problem. There are some justices who seem concerned about it. Unfortunately, not, not enough. <laughs> very many. Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at calidusai.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went 
to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. Okay, Catherine, talk yes, to sir. us about billing. So as part of the AmLaw 100 data that ALM collects every year, they uh, also put out a chart that's just like fun stats that they collected as part of, you know, ranking every firm. Every year, they also find out the firm that has the uh, individual who billed the most hours. And this past year, that person billed 3,737 hours. Those are a lot of hours. That's a lot of hours. That's over 10 hours a day, every day, 365 days. Right. That sounds like a lyric to rent. Like how many yeah. hours you work? Three thousand three hundred and seventy-five <laughs> well, of them. You know, like ends up being like seventy hours a week, right? A little bit more than seventy hours a week every week. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, this individual was at McDermott, which you know, I guess shout out to that firm. Uh, for, mm-hmm. But we've gotten a lot of feedback <laughs> about this little uh, stat, saying how is this possible? This seems like a lot. It certainly is a lot. Uh, what we don't know is if this was an atypical year for the mm-hmm. attorney in- involved. Perhaps they I went hope from so. Trial to trial. <laughs> <laughs> Dear God, this is- perhaps they went from trial to trial. And, you know, I think that if you're in a trial or some other situation where your entire day is pretty much billable because everything falls under the auspices of trial prep in some Mm -hmm. way, this is a a lot more feasible uh, benchmark to hit than if you're working on five or six different matters, you know, constantly throughout the year. And, you know, there's that whole transition period between one to the other. There's always downtime in between, you know, you might be in the office for 12 hours, but your chances of actually billing 12 hours is unlikely when you're going back and forth between multiple matters. That makes this a much harder number. Yeah, it's a pretty hard number even with that. Uh, like you, Sure. It, it's totally reasonable. Like I, As I said, it's a little over 10 hours a day, 365 days, right? Yeah. But if you're in a trial or in the middle of a major deal, it is not unheard of to be billing 18 19 hours a day for six a weeks month on yeah and six weeks on end but even if you front load the numbers this way they're still getting absolutely slammed throughout the rest of the mm-hmm. year which yeah. is brutal it is it is absolutely brutal i don't envy this person at all yeah <laughs> I, I feel like the only way I mean, I know they won't be sleeping at night, but I feel like the only thing I could I could sleep peacefully at night is if this was either a clerical error or a cry for help. <laughs> those are the only reasonable options. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, um, this is we talk about lifestyle uh, issues with law firms a lot, and in particular, how you know there, there's there's a bravado culture that says, oh, you know, we all we all went through this working this hard. But the issue, the reality is that's not really true, right? Well, mm-hmm. because AMLAW collects this data, we can look back and find that the the average attorney and big law attorney was billing something like sixteen hundred dollars an hour in nineteen eighty six mm-hmm. or something along those lines. And Sixty hours, yeah. What? Yeah, I think that this year the hundred hours. I think yeah, the average was in the nineteen hundred uh, hours. I, I think that's where it was in the late nineties. I believe that's 
what it is this year. Oh, okay. I'm saying, you know, again, that's on average, that's, you know, the people who are underperforming, the people who are overperforming combined together, um, you know, the way that that works. It's egregious. Uh, and, and, and a sign that the firm probably needs to give this person some mandatory time off. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that is definitely a much more popular solution mm -hmm. than it ever was historically. And I think that that's the good thing. Listen, this could be a once in a lifetime kind of year for this, you know, attorney. And it's just I the way so. things work. <laughs> well, you, I think it tends to be, you know, people who bill a lot, bill a lot. But, you know, oh, I think that it's certainly possible that you know, faced when you see someone at the end of a year who's billed this many hours, you should be like, let's talk about a sabbatical. <laughs> let's make sure you're okay. Yeah. 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 So the stat that I was referring to, though, is that the high, the highest billable hours per lawyer at a firm was uh, at Fish, and that was uh, 1,918. So uh, okay. every other firm falls below that number. So that is the most. Uh, billable hours per lawyer at any AmLaw 100 firm. Okay. So also remember that if you're a law student or you're thinking about lateraling and there's a 2,000 hour billable hour requirement, mm -hmm. that doesn't, oh, sure, that's not terrible. I'm sure I can do 2,000 hours. Maybe, but the highest billable hours per lawyer in the AmLaw 100 is 19. Yeah, although I think, I feel as though- That's probably chargeable, but- there's probably write-offs that there, might there, count towards There may your... well be write-offs there. That, and also, I feel as though that associates make that 2000 I feel as though sure. partners, generally speaking, are billing higher rates and utilizing fewer individual hours, especially because they're all... Not that they aren't working hard, but there's business development work happening, sure. firm admin work happening that isn't captured in this. I. I think the average partner is probably bringing that down quite a bit. I think you're, I think you're probably right, but I think the other thing is that everyone, listen, lawyers are generally type A sorts of personalities. Everyone thinks they are going to be the one that hits their hours. And, right. yet, and yet they have these requirements because not everyone does. True. Okay, so uh, the final story that we covered that, you know, generated a lot of interest out there is the latest in Disney's ongoing battle with Ron DeSantis. DeSantis decided after, you know, we the last time we discussed all this, it was when Disney's lawyers were way smarter than DeSantis's and had successfully <laughs> penned a number of deals between the Reedy, Reedy Creek Improvement District, Improvement District yeah. whatever, whatever the actual acronym is, the quasi-governmental organization that runs the government over a lot of Disney property holdings. Disney executed under all of the public requirements. They executed a series of deals with Reedy Creek that gave them a lot of the authority over the land that they themselves own. This was a problem for DeSantis, who was trying to replace the board as a matter of retaliation. He has now uh, had that bo new board vote to say that all of the deals that the old board did are invalid. Uh, this was met within hours by a lengthy complaint that was already prepared by <laughs> Disney's lawyers for this exact eventuality. They were good lawyers for a reason. <laughs> Immediately filed in the Northern District of Florida that 
challenged the new board's ability to do this on a number of grounds, some of them being the First Amendment grounds. Those are going to get a lot of the attention because the First Amendment. I think in the mainstream press, for sure, that First Amendment plays pretty well. It's understandable. They understand what it means. Yeah. yeah. Uh, In this instance, we have a lot of reason to believe that this was retaliatory, uh, given. Because of everything that he said. Circumstantial (laughs) evidence like him actually saying, I'm doing this as an act of retaliation. Uh, Multiple members of the state legislature who passed the bill allowing this new board to do this saying this bill is designed to retaliate against disney you know things like that uh subtle little things that really take (laughs) out so a real problem for them uh obviously there are first amendment claims there there are takings clause claims there because this is obviously property interests that they are trying to take away without compensation uh there are there are due process claims given that Mm -hmm. this was retaliatory there's also the claim that I think we would argue is the most slam dunk claim, though a new article by Mark Joseph Stern from Slate uh, argues that this is probably an ill-advised argument. I'm not sure I agree with that, but it's a, it's a certainly an interesting take. A contracts clause claim, uh, for those who aren't familiar, the United States Constitution, one of the things, you know, there's a lot of things that people imagine the Constitution says. Mm -hmm. As it turns out, one thing it actually very directly says is that states do not have the power to invalidate contracts. Mm -hmm. So if you have an existing contract between, say, Reedy Creek and Disney, (laughs) you do not get to, as a state government, roll in and say, we've decided to nix that. Yeah. And I think the argument that uh, Mark Joseph Stern is making and others is that uh, this has a potential to be abused because, listen, the the contracts clause in the Constitution is not something that's litigated frequently. I think that the most recent case is 1902. That is correct. Right. Uh, So this isn't something that comes up a ton. And it's worrying it's potentially worrying uh, for sort of our corporate overlords. Although, as our government overlords are doing a poor job, who's to say that it's actually worse? But so I understand the sort of fear that Stern's argument is that this develops kind of from an old, from the bad old days, the Lochner era days, sure. where businesses utilized and invoked this clause as a reason to prevent, say municipalities from cleaning the water and stuff like that. Uh, A municipality might say, oh, I want to build a reservoir and have, you know, publicly available city water. And businesses would say, oh, no, we have a deal to supply water, so you aren't allowed to get in our way. These sorts of stretches of what this is supposed Mm -hmm. to do are argue, he argues, if the if Disney successfully brings this claim and it go- starts going up the ladder, it's going to become a new hook for bad actors in the judiciary to hang a neo Lochner mm-hmm. worldview upon. Which I think it can do that. I, I'm not. I'm not disputing that. That's a possibility. Sure. I also though think that it puts a lot on a litigant to say. Don't make the most direct good faith argument because there's a risk that a future bad faith judge would exploit it. Uh, I I don't think you you as an advocate cannot make that argument. I I think that, you know, the big law attorneys at I think it's O'Melveny and Wilmer and Hale have to make this argument. It's right there. It's it's in the Constitution. It's It's not far. Yeah. (laughs) And this is I mean, 
what DeSantis is doing is wild, right? Like he's running roughshod over an entire body of law, something the most, and I think making this constitutional argument is the most basic of things to, to argue. Would you say what he's doing is goofy? No. (laughs) There was that onion. The the onion did a great uh, headline. uh, Goofy beats Ron DeSantis to death with crowbar. uh, (laughs) I've seen that everywhere now. (laughs) Yeah. So, I think that the lawyers involved here are doing a great job. Unsurprisingly, Disney's lawyers continue to be better than anybody working for DeSantis. Yes. And in this instance, they are zealously pursuing the most effective path of least resistance argument. Mm-hmm. And I I don't think you can fault them for that. Yes. And like I get to I get the argument that it can be exploited by by people, but that's true of almost everything, right? Like you mm-hmm. can't you can't make a First Amendment argument without it beco- becoming twisted into some kind of bad faith First Amendment argument. We see this all the time with with uh, with this like campus free speech yep. quote unquote crisis where people are utilizing First Amendment precedent as an argument why protesting is bad, which one would think is the point of the First Amendment. But, you know, <laughs> bad faith actors going to bad faith. And the contracts clause exists for a reason. It's. Like it can be used to help robber barons continue to exploit people, but in a lot of ways, it was built to prevent, you know, in the kind of sepia toned how the framers thought of things. They worried that the state government would be populated by people more willing to bend with the winds of political, uh, sure, political expediency, and that states would disrupt the national economy by screwing around and uh, seizing popular th- things to be popular. And this is this is what we have here. We have kind of a mob mentality that DeSantis is leaning into, and he's trying to utilize state power to screw up a multinational corporation for that reason. And that's that's what that's why this is here. This is what, what like if you you know, a lot of times people kind of use the imagine if you asked the founding fathers, blah, <laughs> right. blah, blah, blah. And it's like, mm-hmm. you know, they would be wowed by just the sort of all the modern inventions. But if you literally were able to pose this particular <laughs> scenario to a founding father, they'd be like, yes, I have thought about that exact scenario. This is exactly why this is. <laughs> this, this, is this is not is, what we wanted. This is not what yeah. we wanted. <laughs> and yeah, like it. I don't know. I think, though, it is a very valuable point to raise. And I think it's important to flag it for the purposes of the appellate advocacy and the future judges and clerks who are going to work on it, that whatever result comes out of this be cabined as best one can to prevent this kind of slippery slope into robber baron territory. But, yeah, this... This seems like a pretty good argument to be making here for me. I, I, yeah, I'd have to agree. Well, before we close off, I just wanted to say out there, uh, and we know we have listeners among the law student ranks, uh, the ABA Law Student Division is looking for student hosts for its law student podcast. So if you're a law student, want to get in front of an audience and connect with some industry leaders, do some interviews with important folks, you can find a link to the application for this gig in the show notes for this episode. So there you go. And and I actually been on that podcast in the past uh, a long time ago. So, you know, good show. 
with that said, you should be subscribed to this show so you get new episodes when they come out. Give reviews, stars, write something. It uh, helps the algorithm know that we're here. You should be reading Above the Law so that you read these and other stories before they come out. You can check out other shows. Catherine's on The Jabot. I'm on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundup. You can check out a bunch of different op- offerings, including the Law Student Podcast at Legal Talk Network. You should follow us on social media. We remain vigilantly without our blue check marks on Twitter. <laughs> uh, you can check out at ATL blog, at Joseph Patrice, at Catherine One, the numeral one, and at Rights for Rent. That's rights with a W, like writing something and not rights like the right to invalidate a contract. Uh, <laughs> and with all of that said, I think we're done and we will check in with you all next week. Matt. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.